If you have a Bible, please open it to the 39th Psalm. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back side of the notes. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading the 39th Psalm. Psalm 39. A Psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Salah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Salah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. O Lord God, this is a difficult and heavy psalm. pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would help us to learn the lesson that David has learned, that we might echo his confession that you alone are our hope. Lord God, give the increase to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our psalm this morning alters from the theme of the last few weeks, last few psalms. The last two weeks we looked at Psalm 34, celebrating God's miraculous deliverance, his amazing salvation. The Lord rescued and delivered David, and he's just shouting, overjoyed with it. One of the things I love about the Psalter is the shift and the variety of the experiences of life. God has not just given us songs to sing to him, prayers to pray to him when we are happy, but also when we are sad, when we are rejoicing and when we are vexed, when we are grieving, when we are triumphant. This morning's psalm, I've titled the message, The Refiner's Fire, deals with the vexation, the frustration, the anguish of of this transient and temporal life. Um, Many people have wrestled with this. This is a theme that comes up again and again in Scripture. And So I just want you to stop and ask yourself, what do you do when life knocks your legs out from underneath you? What do you do when your dreams crumble, when your hopes 
dissolve like a moth. What do you do when what you love is taken from you? What do you do when what you cherish is destroyed? What do you do when you see the vanity of this life? You can respond as some apostate 13th century monks did in a text that Karl Orff put to music. You're, you won't know the name of Fortunata, but I'm certain most of you have heard the music. The bum, ba, dun, dun, bum, bum. It's seen in lots of movies. The text says this. Now, the important thing is the text. One wrong way to respond is this. Oh, fortune. Like the moon, you are changeable, ever waxing, ever waning. Hateful life first oppresses, then soothes as fancy takes it. Poverty and power, it melts them like ice. Fate, monstrous and empty, you whirling wheel, you are benevolent. Well-being is vain and always fades to nothing. Shadowed and veiled, you plague me. Now through the game, I bring my back to bear to your villainy. Fate is against me in health and virtue, driven on and weighted down, always enslaved, so that this hour without delay pluck the strings, since fate strikes down the strong man, everyone weep with me. That is someone voicing wrongly, wickedly, their conclusions to some of the same issues that David is dealing with here. The psalm moves through four movements. I've outlined them here. First, David's anguish and agitation of silence. And the flow is this. David announces that something was troubling him. And he kept himself silent. You see that in the first three verses. I said, I'll guard my ways. They may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth of the muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. So something is troubling David. And as he's keeping quiet, it's getting hotter and hotter. His emotions are getting stronger and stronger until finally he speaks. And what he speaks about is the vanity of life. The shortness of life. The powerlessness of man. And he deals with the Lord's discipline in his life and his sin. What Psalm 39 gives us is a right response. Um, O Fortunata and countless other songs and lyrics written by man deal with this wrongly. But these can be the crossroads. What you do when your hopes are destroyed. What you do when what you love is taken from you. What you do when your plans fail is critical. In many respects, this is the entire focus, or largely the entire focus, of the book of Job. And in fact, there's, I think, some evidence that David is even aware of and or referencing or, or some of his language seems to be taken from Job. Remember Job? This is a good example. Job was a, a righteous man. He honored God. He fasted and prayed, and the Lord had blessed him with wealth. The Lord had blessed him with a large family. And in one day, he gets the news that all of his children have died, and all of his wealth is taken from him. And then, a short while later, his health is taken from him. And so in very quick succession, Job's family, his wealth, his business, and his health is taken from him. And the question is, how will he respond? David, we don't know what it is that he is responding to. Some calamity that has driven him to this type of vexation. And in that sense, the psalm then opens up to all of us. Perhaps it's the cancer that was unexpected. Perhaps it's the termination of a job. 
the death of a child, the failed marriage. You can fill in the blanks with all of the things that we dream and hope for. And we can be tempted to think when that happens, what was the point? What was the use? Why bother trying? These are some of the things I think David is wrestling with. So we're going to move through this and try to learn the lesson that David has for us, that God has for us in his word. So first, in the first three verses, we see David's commitment to silence. He repeats it. I said, I'll guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And so repeated multiple times is David's commitment. And he gives us his motivation why he's so committed. He gives us two reasons. One, he's afraid if he speaks prematurely, he will sin with his tongue. And second, because of the presence of the wicked. I'll read a commentator um, speaking to this sums it up this way. This determination to keep silent presupposes the urge to speak. So basically saying is you don't tell yourself, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to talk, unless you desire to talk. So the determination to keep silent presupposes the urge to speak, and the urge to speak was presumably provoked by the wicked people in his presence. The very presence then of the wicked, in other words, provoked him to speak, and at the same time created the reason to discipline himself not to speak. At the root of his dilemma, one must suppose David has within him questions such as those Job raised about the prosperity of the wicked. The sin would lie in answering such questions in anger and haste, which would only imply that God was not just or fair. And this is an important lesson. When we are in anguish, think, pray, work your way through things. Do not act hastily. David at least has the self-control to recognize if I speak now, if I respond now, I will respond wrongly. And we get evidence from within this psalm that he he at least can get to a point where he can speak in a righteous way. Keep keep your thumb here. Turn to Job 7. I'll use Job 7 as a sort of foil. Perhaps David's even aware of Job 7. Like I said, there's some verbal parallels And I think in Job 7, we we see the type of speech David was afraid he may have made. Because Job's going to say, I want to speak and I'm upset and I'm going to. Now Job has just been hit with the whirlwind of the loss of his children, of all of his wealth and of his health. And then he gets these friends who come and insinuate he's done something wrong to deserve this. And we know that through the course of these discourses, Job will speak wrongly. He will condemn God, and God will show up and silence him. Job 7, starting in verse 7, Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so who, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone. 
For my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, that you set before your, your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you? You watcher of mankind, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth and you will seek me, but I shall not be. Whoa. So when David begins by saying, (laughs) I kept silent because I didn't want to sin with my lips. He may well have this type of response in mind. So the first lesson I would give when we, when we are hit by the tornadoes in life, when, when the ground is taken up from under our feet, is to take some time to pray and think. David will not make those mistakes. He's concerned that he'll sin with his tongue. And the presence of the wicked bothers him, possibly in one of two ways. Either he may be envious of their lack of affliction, or he may anticipate their taunts and their mockery. Oh, look at the one who trusted God. Look how it turned out for him. Or perhaps even both. So we see his commitment to silence. Next, the consequence of his silence. He grew in his distress. He he kept silent, but his anguish only intensified. His frustration, his vexation grew. His his heart grew hot within him. That that phrase for my heart became hot within me is, is similar to the language of Deuteronomy 19, speaking of the passion of the avenger of blood who can chase the one who murdered someone in their family until he reaches a city of refuge. Lest the avenger of blood in hot pursuit, hot anger, pursue the manslayer and overtake him. So, so understand, David is speaking of real distress. He is really, the pressure is building within him. And so he finally does speak. He does speak. Which then, his speech really comes in two phases. Verses 4 to 6, verses 7 through 11, and then the psalm will end with a final prayer and supplication. Now David, like I said, has, has gained wisdom just by keeping his mouth shut. Because even though he's vexed, and even though he's looking at the vanity of life, he comes as a supplicant. He comes as a student. He, he at least understands, clearly I need instruction because this all looks useless and vain to me. And so he begins, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. He looks at the brevity and the vanity of life. How many of you understand or realize that oftentimes what we need most is an understanding of how small we are? This is not a prayer for self-esteem. It's the opposite. David's saying, I, I am not aware enough. I need instruction on how small insignificant, and transient I am. We live in a day and age where we insist, no, no, you need to think better of yourself. You need to think more of yourself. You need a better self-image and self-esteem. Oh, Lord, make me know the end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. That's David's prayer. Why? Why would he ask for such a thing? He requests instruction on his mortality. That's the blank. He requests instruction and his mortality. And then from that request, he moves to his reflections on, his, on this topic. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. 
Hand breadth is about four inches across. It's one of the smallest, if not the smallest, measurement in, in, for an Israelite. You got the cubit from your elbow to your wrist. Hand's breadth is small. And he's saying, That's my life. My life is short. According to Moses in Psalm 90, 70, by force of strength, 80 years. And before God, that's nothing. That's just a mist. It's a flower that appears and is consumed by the sun. So first we look at his individual application, and he notices that God has made his life short. Behold, you have made my days. A few hand's breaths. And of course, that's entirely keeping with the biblical record. Man was first made immortal, and God kicked the man and the woman out of the garden. They were no longer able to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and life. Death is introduced, but even then they lived to nearly a thousand years old. And then after the flood, the Lord reduces man's lifespan to what Moses comments in Psalm 90 is 70 or 80 years. Absolutely. God is responsible. God is the reason why our lives are so relatively short. He says so in his word. David says so here. Behold, you have made my days a few hands' breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. One of the things we learn when we are disappointed with the events of this life is how fleeting it is. We like to think that we remembered, we like to think that we'll make a difference, but so many people in history are forgotten. And life under the sun, without taking God into account, is, I think, rightly meaningless. Uh, The meditations of David here are going to be developed by his son Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll look at that in a few moments. But his first reflection is that God is the one responsible for making his life so short. And in comparison before God, it's nothing. And not just him, he's not just singling himself out. He then becomes a representative of all mankind. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath to the law. We can move to the corporate application. And notice that phrase there at the end of verse 5. It's the closest thing to a chorus this psalm has. Notice the end of verse 5. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath salah. And look at the end of verse 11. Surely all mankind is a mere breath salah. They're very similar. We're getting onto key themes here. It's not just that David's particular life is short. All of us are these transient shadows. And again, these are truths we, we like to pretend are not true. Our culture's way of dealing with it is either to rail out against God, like O Fortunata that Karl Orff put to music, or to tell ourselves, no, we're really important, very important, full of potential people, limitless potential. We can achieve and do anything, and we're never going to die. We're not going to think about that. We're just going to go on in that delusion until we do. Neither of those are hopeful. Neither of those are the right ways to respond. And David expands it just not only from man as a shadow, man as a breath, but then we bring in the notion of futility. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And David, whatever's happened in his life, whatever devastation has come to him, has got him to sit back and watch as it were all the people running around, trying to gather up, trying to do things, trying to accomplish things, trying to build things, trying to win things, trying to do things. And he's saying, what's, what's the use? What's the point? You spend all this time gathering up, you don't know who will gather. 
keep, keep your finger, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Very similar thought to what Solomon will write a few decades later. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Just because you were diligent, just because you escaped the destruction, just because you were able to amass something, you will die, you will move on, and who knows if the person who takes it after you will be a fool. And David is looking at this vanity and this futility, this, this brokenness. And yet so many people are running around thinking if they can just get enough stuff, they win. If they can just achieve enough stuff, then life will have meaning. It won't. So David concludes quite bleakly, man's turmoil is for nothing. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. Surely, for nothing, they are in turmoil. Now, this is a half-true statement. It's true taking God out of the mix. It's true if you think this life is all there is. If you're, if you are, this is why I don't understand how, how people who don't have a hope in God even get out of bed in the morning. If all we are is matter in motion, if all you and I are is stardust, doing what stardust does at this particular temperature, if we're just biological machines carrying out the, the laws of physics as our electrochemistry bounces off itself, then there is no point. The universe does not care, and nothing you do will be remembered billions of years from now. If, if, if this life is all there is, then there's ultimately nothing. Man's turmoil is for nothing. Now, David doesn't end here. That's his first musing. And even in saying it, he knows he needs instruction. He knows that's not all there is to the story. We saw that in verse 4. Oh, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. I know this isn't all there is. There's more I need to know. But still, it looks like life is vain. It looks like all of the work and all of the striving and all of the endeavoring... It's pointless. But even as he says this, I think he begins to draw some clarity. We're going to move now from the brevity and vanity of life to the clarity and agony of discipline. The clarity and agony of discipline. Again, uh, Craigie, commentator, writes this. By beginning to perceive the transitory nature of life, David was beginning to gain a broader perspective within which to interpret its difficulties and hardships. Value in life and appreciation of life must somehow be grasped within a full knowledge of its transitory nature. Let me take what he just said and expound what I think he means by that. The only way you and I can find any real value in life, the appropriate value in life, is as we understand its fleetingness, as we understand its relative unimportance. As people who understand eternities in view, as people who understand there's a living God with whom we have to do, we can then rightly find the real meaning and value in life because we're not looking for ultimate value and meaning in life. But if you're looking for ultimate meaning and value in life, it will leave you shipwrecked and broken. 
So David goes on. David's clarity. I love how this begins. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. If life is so transitory, and if God is its principal goal and meaning, then it's vital that transgressions be dealt with, lest they destroy the potential and meaning of existence. So what David is realizing is, given how brief, fragile, immaterial this life is, then ultimate meaning can't be found in this life. Therefore, where could he put his hope? Where does he find his meaning? Now, you can, you can, like Job's wife, curse God and die. You can rail against fate like those medieval monks. Or, like David, you can say then, if that's true, and it is true as far as it goes, then the only place my hope can be is in God. That's the next thing to learn. When, when your feet are knocked out from underneath you, when your hopes perish, when your health fails, whatever it is, slow down, think, and realize that one of the good things of this type of failure and frustration is it reminds us again there is only one ultimate value, and that's God. There's only one firm and unmoving hope, and that is Him. Yes, He has good gifts, but don't put your hope in them. They will disappoint you. They will fail. Moth and rust will destroy them. And David says, okay, then my hope is only in you. My old... uh, Old Testament professor, Dr. Barak, says this. As David frames his question, he begins to understand its answer. And the other thing he brings in then is, if his hope is only in the Lord, then his greatest need is not the reinstatement of what was lost. If, if it was David's health, some commentators think it's David's health, he, his prayer is, okay, give me my health back. If it was wealth, it's not giving me my money back. If it's a military defeat, he doesn't say, okay, give me a victory. Given this new focus and perspective that because of the vanity of life, because of the transitory nature of life, then his only hope is in God. What's his biggest need? His sin to be dealt with. That's his biggest need. Notice the clarity he gets from this. He begins all hot and bothered because of some sense of the futility of life. He's not thinking about that right now. What he's thinking about right now is his own sin. As his hopes are destroyed in this world, he realizes the only thing he can put his hope on is God. And when he have that understanding, when you're looking and dealing with the living God and him alone because everything else is a vapor, you get a certain clarity. Then if that's true, my relationship with him, my peace with him is of paramount importance. And so he prays in verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. His greatest need? Deliverance from sin. This is also the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, after Solomon goes, endeavor by endeavor, vanity, 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 vanity. The end of the matter, after all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Or in Luke 12, Jesus tells a similar parable. These difficult truths are not simply in the Psalms in the Old Testament. Jesus has a teaching like this. In Luke 12, remember the story he tells of the rich man who built a tower to put all his wealth in? Luke 12, 18 to 21, he said, I will do this. This is the rich man speaking to himself, Jesus speaking. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. 
And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I mean, doesn't that sound like verse 6? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The point of Jesus' parable is no earthly accomplishment, no earthly riches mean anything if you're not right with God. This is the type of clarity that such affliction brings David. You wonder what good purpose there might be in the destruction of your hopes and dreams. If it causes you to realize your single greatest need is reconciliation with God, then that is the best thing God can do for you. I saw this type of clarity get brought firsthand to my own father. Successful attorney, had a family, and he became a quadriplegic overnight. His, his income ability ceased. The outflow to take care of him in the hospital, the doctors, indicated he'd be bankrupt within a few years. And I remember watching, contemplating some of these same things. David said, what's the point? What's the use? I saw my father work so many years, spend so many nights reading. My dad worked hard. And just like a cloud, like a vapor. <laughs> and it was that humbling the Lord used in the final days of his life to bring him to, to ask these questions, to focus on his need of reconciliation with God. And these are difficult strokes, but they are loving strokes. Notice here next that David is silent again, right? It begins with his silence, but here in verse 10, what was in the past tense in the first three verses, verse 2, I was mute. In verse 9, I am mute. Before he was silent because he wanted to speak, he had to hold it in. He was mad. He was upset. He had something to say. Now his, it's almost like his hand is over his mouth as he sees what God is doing in and through this. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. Why? For it's you who've done it. David realizes that all these things that are vexing him, all these things that are upsetting him, ultimately come from the Lord's hand. It was the Lord who, to use the language of William Cooper, um, no, no, John Owen, sorry, destroyed his gourds. Remember Jonah, the Lord broke the gourd tree. It was the Lord who had done it. The Apostle Paul cries out that the thorn in his flesh be removed, and the Lord says, I've given that to you humble you. David sees that the very things in his life that got his attention, the very things in his life that he was burning up about, you, you did that, Lord. You did that. And he's silent. Not silent wanting to speak. Silent, I think, like Job with his hand over his mouth. This is how the book of Job ends, after all. Job 40, verses 3 through 5. After the Lord shows up in the whirlwind and answers Job, and he tells Job, stand up like a man. Answer me, Job. I want to hear what you have to say. And Job says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, and I will proceed no further. David's meditation first starts with the, this is the movement. The Lord's gotten his attention through something in his life dear to him, dissolving, vanishing, which gets him to first think about the futility and the transient nature of life. Life is not an ultimate end, 
But that then gets them to realize, well, what is an ultimate end? Well, it's the living God. If the living God is the ultimate end, then what's my greatest need? My sin. And I'm looking at my sin, and I'm looking at God, and I realize, you, you've done this. You've gotten my attention this way. We, we sing the song, I Ask the Lord. Very similar lyrical concept. John Owen, writing about how he asked the Lord to grow in faith, and the Lord grew his faith by destroying his dreams and plans. Let's move on. David's clarity, his only hope is in the Lord. His greatest need is deliverance from sin. Silent again, for it is the Lord who has done this. And now, as things are clicking for David, this is what the Lord has done to me to get my attention, to get my focus and my hope on him. We proceed to now David's agony. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Salah. Now again, I commented that the end of verse 5, surely all mankind stands as a breath. Salah. The end of this verse are the theme that is repeated. Before it was connected with man's transience, now as he's connected God's discipline and God's work, it's you who have done it, he puts it a different way. And the Lord, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. God loves you so much, he loves me so much, that he will ruthlessly pursue the idols that you put your hope in, He'll pursue the things that you pursue that aren't him. He will destroy them and smash them and take them from you in love that you might put your hope in him. And you can curse and hate that where you can learn from David and say, my hope's only in you. There is nothing in this life that will satisfy. There is nothing in this life that will in and of itself last This is discipline for sin. The Lord is consumed like a moth what is dear. And that reinforces then again the vanity of life. The Lord taught David the vanity of life by removing, taking from him things he held dear. That word for what is dear to him, by the way, is the same word used in the uh, 10th commandment about coveting. The things we desire, the things we want. And again, the New Testament Echoes this refrain, James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. God loves his children. He disciplines his children. And that discipline is painful. And David is, even with his right perspective, even with this new clarity, it still hurts and so David cries out, remove your stroke. I am almost spent. I'm almost destroyed and consumed by your hand. Even with this clarity, it is hard and it is difficult and he asks for it to be taken away. That's okay too. That's okay too. David's agony is plea. Remove your stroke from me. The Lord has consumed what he desired and this reinforced to him the vanity of life. Turn, turn to Hebrews 12 briefly. This is so important. 
Because David's looking this hard truth in the face. Now, again, we, these are hard truths for us. They are. And so oftentimes we'll deny them. Well, God only does good things. If something bad happened to you, that was Satan. God's a gentleman. He doesn't do hard things. And here David says, when the penny dropped, when I realized it was you who did it, I shut my mouth. And the Bible is insistent. The book of Hebrews is insistent. Chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not go angry by it. Do not raise your fist at him for it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, sadly, in today's culture, there's actually a bunch of hands that could raise to that one. But in the author of Hebrews was writing, it was assumed, of course. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time to seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And David leans into the stroke. He accepts it. He asks that it be done. He asks that the Lord take it from him. But he will learn what the Lord has to teach him in this. He will not resist it. He will not resist it. He prays, Lord, remove it from me. I don't know how much longer I can go on. I'm almost consumed. But you've done it. You've done it. And it reinforces to me how small and transient this life is. Which brings finally to David's prayer for mercy and relief. And this is really, I think, where he ends up. He's moved through these two episodes of prayer. First, the futility of life. Secondly, dawning awakening that the Lord has done this. The Lord has disciplined him. This is how the Lord disciplines his children. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David has learned the lesson. This world is not his home. This again was always a lesson the Lord intended for his people to learn. One of the reasons why the Israelites could never sell the land per- permanently, it would always revert back, the year of Jubilee, was according to Leviticus 25, 23, this land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. God wanted to remind the people of Israel, this world is not your ultimate home. Therefore, you can borrow the land. You can rent the land, as it were. But it's not yours. And it's not your children's. It's mine. You are sojourners and aliens. You were made for another world. And David has learned that, which, by the way, suggests he had forgotten that for some time. And we can do that. We can start living in this world like this is our home. 
when things go well for us, when we're prosperous. And as C.S. Lewis said, pain can be God's megaphone to waken us from that delusion. David now confesses, I am a sojourner with you, a guest. Like He's the king of Israel. This world's not his home. He is a sojourner and a guest. And I would suggest to you that only from that vantage point can you actually rightly enjoy the things of this world. There are plenty of things. Paul says all things are given to us freely to enjoy. There are joys and pleasures in this life. They're not ultimate. And I would suggest to you, you can only enjoy them rightly, understanding their transience, understanding your alienation from them. You, you are, this, is, this is not your home. You are an angel and a stranger. The New Testament, again, echoing this. Hebrews 11, citing all of those who died in faith. 11.13, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Or 1 Peter 2.11, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's saying, look, I urge you to view yourself as an immigrant, as a sojourner, as an exile, and not to make yourself too at home in this world. That's what David confesses now. That's what David has learned. And from that vantage point, then David prays that the Lord would restore his joy. Restore my joy for what life I have left. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Again, this parallels what Job says. Job says it, I think, with some bitterness in his voice. How long, says Job 7.19, will you not look away from me? The picture is this. God has been disciplining him. There's a stern, fatherly expression. And David is asking that that sternness turn, that he might smile again. He's mused about how short life is. There's not much left for him. There's not much left for any of us. So he's praying that God might remove his discipline so that he might experience joy. Not joy in the things. Again, whatever it is the Lord's dissolved, David is not asking for it back. He's already made the comment, you alone are my hope. I hope in you. My hope is you. So when David wants to smile again, I believe in the psalm, in the context of the psalm, it's in the Lord. Something like, I, I think I've learned the lesson. I think, I think you've rightly got my attention. I understand. I have this perspective. Now, would the discipline cease that I might experience some joy from you and in you with what little time I have left? And thus the psalm ends. So to recap, David experiences some frustrating loss, failure, Something he hoped for, something he valued being taken from him. Perhaps it's his health. Perhaps it's his wealth. Perhaps it's his the conflict with his children. I don't know. And in that, and in his meditation, as he takes time, silences his mouth from outbursts of anger initially, he first realizes this, this reinforces the, the vanity and the transience of this life. And that then leads him to conclude that's true, then the only place I can put my hope is in the Lord God. And if that's true, then the only thing that really matters is what might 
alienate me from that God. Now, this side of the cross, we have a tremendous help, I think, in hearing this message. This is a hard message. And I think it is within all of us, the, the natural sinful desire to raise our fist and say, I don't like it, and it hurts. Stop. If we do that, we would commit the very transgression that David was intent not to commit. Now, David sees it's from the Lord. He sees it's for his good. It still hurts. He'd still like it to stop. But we live after the cross. And we see God in flesh also endure mistreatment and suffering. And whereas we endure it for our sins, he endured it not for his sins, but for ours. And so you need not fear that God is a sadist, vindictive. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, proves that. He is a savior. He is a loving God. And if you ever doubt that, as you wrestle and grapple with the losses in this life, just look to the cross. This is what God has done to deliver and redeem his people. There's nothing that God has sent into your life that he himself has not endured on our behalf and worse. And we're going to prepare to celebrate the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate that gift. I'm going to ask the men to come forward and we're going to pray while they come forward. Lord God, help us to realize this world is not our home. Help us to realize that we are aliens and strangers. Lord, as we, uh, as we process the difficult losses of this life, the frustrations of our hopes and plans, guard us from that sinful anger that would raise our fists at you. And rather, let us see it as your loving chastening, your rod, your stroke, your discipline. That it is in love that you do these things for us to remind us that we are but dust, to remind us that our only hope is in you. But Lord, that hope does not disappoint. You have sent your son for us. You have promised us an inheritance that will not fade, where moth and rust do not destroy, a kingdom, an eternal home. You have called us your sons and daughters, all through the blood of your son, Jesus. It's his name that we pray. Amen.